Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much just for this time. We get to open the Word of God. <clears throat> Be with one another, Lord, as we look into the truth of your Word. I pray that you will bless this time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously, it was a, we had a lovely weekend in Easter, but it was a very eventful weekend, wasn't it, around the world? We saw the fire of Notre Dame, we saw the um, terrible Sri Lankan bombings, various other things that happened. And as we sort of reflect on some of these things, in my mind, it was a very good opportunity for us to take a moment just to think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this world. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, a little bit about the concept of discipleship. And this is actually a talk I gave a few weeks ago to the Bible College students up in York, obviously a much shorter version, and I really felt there was more I wanted to tease out of it. So I've done that this morning, so we're having a, another go at it more for our congregation this morning. So let me just start by sharing with you uh, a recent poll that was released in the run-up to Easter. This was just on the 15th of April. It was in the UK, and the results were that less than half of British Christians believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins. <clears throat> less than half of British Christians. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Now, 46% of British Christians believe Jesus died on the cross to save them from their sins a new poll has found. The survey of over 2,000 British adults was carried out by Comrades on behalf of the BBC, and the participants were asked this question. To what extent, if at all, do you agree or disagree that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected at Easter so that you can be forgiven for your sins? Now, out of all those who identified as Christian, a quarter said they neither agreed nor disagreed, while 17% said they did not agree. Now, obviously, I know polling data is... You know, notoriously variable, but to identify as a Christian and then in the next statement to flat out reject or, or to even not have an opinion on what Easter or the resurrection, the death of Christ is all about, this is a problem. Okay, you understand for Christianity, th this is a real problem for where we are. And I would say this is a discipleship problem. We have a discipleship problem in the church. Not in all churches, I'm speaking obviously broadly and generally here. And what I want to do this morning is really examine with you the deep concept of what it means to be a disciple. Because if we are born again believers, if we claim to have new life in Jesus Christ, then really we do not get the option of not being a disciple. The two things absolutely go together. But so often I find there's a split between them both. Now when most people are asked what it means to be a disciple, um, they'll say things like to be a follower of Jesus, maybe to be growing in your knowledge of him, to be sanctified, and all these sorts of things. And they are all absolutely correct. That is part of it. Those things are definitely involved. I'm hoping by the end of this study, we'll be able to give a much fuller, simple definition to what this means. Now, when we encounter the term disciple, um, you won't really find discipleship. That's, that's something that we, we've formed. But the word disciple, what it means to be a disciple, when we read this in the Bible, we must understand we are reading it within the culture of Second Temple period Judaism. And that is how I want to start to understand it. Okay, we must be very careful as 21st century Christians that we do not take our ideas and overlay them back onto the biblical text. Okay, anyone who, who studies the, the, the interpretation of the Bible will tell you that's not what you do. You're supposed to start with the history and the culture and the context of the Bible and you read out of the text. 
and you make application from the meaning. That's, that's the very meaning of the word exegesis, if you've ever heard that word, to read out of the text. And quite often, and we're all guilty of this, it's very easy to interpret things through our culture and our lens and our understanding without doing the due diligence to try and find out the original authorial intent. So that's what I want to try and do this morning. And I think it's quite illuminating for us as we examine the concept of discipleship. Now, if you, you have your Bible, let's turn to Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. This is the famous Great Commission. <clears throat> the famous uh, charge that Jesus gave his disciples at the end of his ministry. I'll read verses 16 to 20 for you. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It's a good, uh, good verse for your Jehovah's Witnesses uh, witnessing there, by the way. Just while I'm thinking about that. They worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. <clears throat> and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now, arguably, this is probably one of the best-known Christian texts or texts in the Christian tradition, and I want to dig a little deeper into it now. Now, what is discipleship at its core? If we look at this just simply referring to the language, uh, the word that we see there in the Matthew, uh, Matthew passage is a Greek word that means to be a learner. We understand that concept, but I also want to caution us, make sure that we don't, again, Think about it in our context. Often when we think of learning in, our, in the Western world, we, we think of a university setting. We think of a teacher with a class of students. We think of one man who has a certain amount of facts, and he is there to simply impart those facts to another person. Now, obviously, that is involved, but that is a very one-dimensional concept of what the Jewish people meant by discipleship in this time. So we're going to go much deeper than that. Now, what is the difference between a convert and a disciple? This is a question for us to think about. Well, generally, in our culture, we would say that a convert is someone who has been born again, someone who has given their life to Christ. Can someone be a convert and not a disciple? Obviously, there's a time where people have to grow into discipleship. When George Whitfield, the famous revivalist preacher from the Great Awakening, 17th century, when he was traveling around New England leading these great revivals, people would often ask him, how many people got saved after your message? We find that sort of attitude today, don't we? I know when, like, when J. John does his big kind of just one stadium meetings or when Billy Graham does these things, people want to know how many people got saved. That's how we measure the success. Are people getting saved? Are people getting saved? Now, on the one hand, I understand that and I totally appreciate it. But on the other hand, we need to be careful with that sort of attitude. George Whitfield replied, he says, I, I can answer you, I'll, I'll tell you how many in five years. You see, and what he meant by that was that in five years, you'll find the ones, you know, the seed that fell on the good ground and produced fruit. Because a lot of that seed will be falling on rocky ground, if you know the parable there. That's what he meant. Now, there is a danger of producing converts and not disciples. It's very easy in our church, in the busy world that we live in, someone gets saved, they get incorporated into the church, put on a couple of rotors, and that's pretty much discipleship. They've got the sermon on Sunday morning, and, and that is it. Again, all these things are necessary, but it's more than that. You see, 
if you become a convert and you never become a disciple, really your worldview will more likely resemble the world. You will never have your mind transformed and renewed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And you see, a church that is made up purely of converts without disciples will really be indistinguishable from the world if we represent the world's values. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the word of the ministry of the word in the church. This is why in our church we try and place so much emphasis on teaching the word of God. You see, the church is a called out entity. It's one that is meant to be set apart. It's one that's meant to stand out and confront the world. We have different values, we have different ideas, different realities. These come from the word of God, the character of God himself. The world does not share these. This is part of the mission of the church. This is part of being a disciple. Many of you will probably know the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you heard that name? He was a, a German theologian and he was executed by the Nazis in a concentration camp for resistance to Hitler, basically. Um, and he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he came up with the concepts that have kind of filtered through evangelicalism over the years, and that is the term cheap grace. May, you may have heard that term. People often say we mustn't preach cheap grace. And then he, he came up with that, and he also had costly grace. Cheap grace and costly grace. Let me read to you two quotes from Bonhoeffer's book, Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, in his understanding of grace and discipleship, he includes repentance, discipleship, and also baptism. Baptism, so I just heard James just make an announcement about baptism, and we read it in Matthew 28. It's always very intimately connected with discipleship, and that's something to think about. I know many churches are just reading uh, something from John Piper, and he, he will not allow people to be a member of his church unless they've been baptized. And his point is not some sort of thing you have to do to be a member of the church. His point is that to be a disciple, you're supposed to obey that first command. That's what discipleship is all about. Um, you know, and we don't have, obviously, a membership structure in here, but it's a good principle for us to understand what they're getting at. Discipleship is a public uh, baptism, rather, is a public expression of your willingness to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But the main point, Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. He then goes on to say costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. This is costly grace. Someone who has understood and calculated the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ in this world. Now, what is it that's missing to turn a convert into a disciple? And this is what we're talking about this morning. Discipleship is the very thing there. And they are right. Discipleship does start with a call to follow him. You remember Peter, uh, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, when they were first on the sea, Matthew 4, verses 19, Jesus came up and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. That was the first call there to the apostles of discipleship. 
follow me. Now, interestingly, if you've ever noticed in the Bible, we, we love the character of Peter. We, find that we see ourselves in him a lot because he messed up a lot and he was just enthusiastic but over the top and he's all these uh, sort of lovable characteristics that make for very good reading. The first words Jesus ever spoke to him were, follow me. And if you track throughout the Bible, you'll notice that the last words Jesus ever spoke to him was also, follow me. You remember in the Gospel of John where the Christ is death buried, he's been resurrected and now he's glorified, he's back on the earth and he comes to his disciples and John is sort of arguing with Peter that they're sort of having a discussion about, you know, what's going to happen to John. And Peter says, you know, what's going to happen to him? John chapter 21, 22, and Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, I just, I love the way that you know, the start and the end of Jesus's charge to Peter was simply follow me. You see, and in between those two calls is that whole life of discipleship that we see throughout the Gospels and Acts of Peter. We see a whole lot of failure from Peter, a whole lot of trial, a lot of difficulty, but ultimately we see a life that is dedicated to following the Lord Jesus Christ. The call to follow Christ, follow me, was both the foundation stone and the capstone of Peter's life. And I think it's good to examine ourselves in this light, because often it's very easy in the Christian life. We start off excited about that call, follow me. But then slowly, as we get into the grind, as life sort of piles on top of us, as things become heavy burdens on our backs, it's very easy to forget those words about what it was that transformed us, what it is we're supposed to be doing when we're following Jesus Christ. And would Christ again come to us in our lives and would he just remind us gently, follow me? Would you say those words to us again? I think he says that to, to all of us at this time. Because the pleasures of life, the, the activities of life, and all the things that we focus on, some of which are not bad in any way, but we must have in the forefront of our minds that charge of Jesus Christ, follow me. Because quite simply, that is the very reason for living. Follow me. You see, discipleship is about learning. But when Jesus says, follow me, that implies a destination, doesn't it? Follow me to where? Follow me to what? There is a destination and there is a focus to Jesus' charge. And this is what we find revealed to us in the Bible. Now, in the Jewish tradition, the concept of learning was very, very ingrained at this time. They have a, 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 a tractate in the Mishnah called The Ethics of the Fathers. And in that book, there are four types of learners listed in Jewish tradition. Uh, I'll read it. It says this. But this is from the Mishnah, tractate 15. There are four types among those who sit before the sages. A sponge, a funnel, a strainer, and a sieve. A sponge soaks up everything. A funnel takes in at one end and lets out the other. A strainer which lets out the wine and retains the lease. And a sieve which lets out the coarse meal and retains the choice flour. Now often it was customary to ask the students what was the best sort of student listed in that group. And oftentimes people will list a sponge because they say that's the best thing to be. You're sitting in front of your teacher, your sage, your rabbi, and you just want to soak up everything. Now, of course, that's a good response in many ways. But the question becomes, what if he is saying something that is, in fact, not good for you? And you're just soaking that up like a sponge. So a sponge is not the best sort of student to be. It is, in fact, a sieve. You let out the course and you retain the choice. 
And that is what we're commanded to do in the Bible. It's, you know, search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Examine yourselves daily in front of the word of God. Test all things, it says in the Bible, doesn't it? This is our charge. We take the word of God as our standard and we throw away things which we hear are not, which are not from the word of God. Now we can ask ourselves, personally, you can all ask in your own heads, what sort of students do you think you are? And what is the best type? I would say, and the Jewish tradition taught that it was to be a sieve. Now this sort of model that we have here, this four-type parable, this was very, very common. Just read one example to you of the Mishnah. Four types of people who sit among the sages. There was another one that talked about four types of people generally. There was another one that talked about four types of temperament, four types of people who gave to charity. Um, there's just so many of these. It was a very common Jewish parabolic method. And many scholars actually think this is pretty much what Jesus is doing with his parable of the sower. You notice there are four types of people who hear the word of God in that parable. It's not really, a, it's not about the seed, it's about the, the ground which represents the people. These four types, it's just very much in keeping with the way that the Jewish people used these parables. Now let me give you, I'm going to just, obviously I say we want to go back to the first century to see what this means. In fact, we actually have to go back further than the first century. We're going to go back and trace a little bit of history of the concept of discipleship to get to where it was, where Jesus was in this world. We know the story. Old Testament Israel, they strayed from God many times. God would then send them prophets. Prophets would then announce judgment, hoping to get the people to repent. Now, continued disobedience to the commands of God would eventually lead to captivity. We see this all through the Bible. We have two main captivities, the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivity that Israel goes into. It's during these parts of Israel's history that many of our great Bible stories are found. Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, all these things with Darius, the story, the wonderful story of the book of Esther, and all these times. These are all captivity times. And then you have these great figures, Ezra and Nehemiah, and the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. These are all in the captivity and trying to, obviously the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've studied it in house group, is about coming back from captivity and rebuilding the temple. And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah who are leading this. And you remember that amazing passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, where Ezra leads that national Bible study. He gets up and he constructs this wooden podium and he stands on there and he reads and teaches the word of God. And the Levites are out amongst the people explaining and understanding the word of God. And that leads the, the nation to repentance, to weep about where they've left and how they went into captivity. That was Ezra, the men of the great assembly. Now, what Ezra did after this, there's a strong tradition that surrounds Ezra. He raised a generation of leaders who became known, as I just mentioned, by the, as the men of the great assembly. It's the Knesset Hagedolah in Hebrew. Now, you might recognize that word, the Knesset. I'll talk about that in a minute. This was a group of Jewish personalities who assumed the reins of sort of Jewish leadership between 400 and 300 BC around these times. And what they realized was that the um, the Jewish people, people were in a very weak state spiritually. They needed wise leaders at this time. So what they did is they expanded the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish leadership council. It consisted of 70 men. They expanded that to 120 men. And these were initially gathered by Ezra, who we read about in the Bible. And they really defined Judaism uh, at this time. And in many ways, they are the reason that you have such a strong Jewish identity through the years. Now today, the Israeli parliament in Israel, you might notice, is called the Knesset. Um, and they have 120 members. 
And they've done that specifically because they're representing the, the great assembly, the Ezra. Obviously, they have different purposes now, but that's what they're doing when they do that. Now, who was involved in this great assembly? Well, the, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were in it. Malachi, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, as well as the sages, Mordecai from the book of Esther. He was one of these people. There were some other people, Yehoshua, the high priest, Nehemiah, and Shimon HaSadik, who was a very famous high priest in Israel. These are all big characters. They loom large in Israeli history, Jewish history. They were all men of the great assembly. And one thing that they recognized was that the captivity was not due to a lack of military strength, but it was due to forsaking God's commandments. This is pivotal to understand. The captivity was due to forsaking God's commandments. And in order to prevent a future exile, now that they were back, the men of the Great Assembly developed a three-pronged approach to Jewish life. Let me read to you. This is from the uh, Ethics of the Fathers, another Mishnaic tract. It says, Moses received the Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua transmitted it to the elders, and the elders transmitted it to the prophets, and the prophets transmitted it to the men of the Great Assembly. The men of the Great Assembly used to say three things. One, be diligent in justice. Two, raise up many disciples. And three, make a fence around the Torah. You might be familiar with all of those things. Obviously, justice was a huge call in the Old Testament, the charge for justice. This was particularly concerned with making sure that leaders did not fleece the people. That was one of the ways this was interpreted. What they meant is that leaders did not take bribes. It was a very, very strong theme in, in Jewish culture. This is maybe one of the reasons why you see Jesus react so strongly with that episode in the temple when he casts out the money changers. You know, where people often don't understand quite why it's such a, it seems like such a violent reaction, which seems so different to everything else that Jesus does. This is the reason why, because it was one of the foundational principles that was instituted after the captivities, and it was taught to every generation of Jewish people at that time. The leaders should not take bribes. Yet when Jesus comes, this is the very thing that's going on in the temple in the house of God. That's why he's so indignant about this at this time. And obviously, more than that, because it was his house. And it says, make up disciples. And then it also says, make a fence around the Torah. Now, this obviously pricks up our ears. We get a little, un we get a little wary about that. Let me explain this to you. Originally, this was a good intention. The idea was to make sure that the nation of Israel did not break the commandments of God and go back into captivity, because that was such a horrible time. That was the whole point of it. You see, we don't want to go back into captivity. However, over time, these fences accumulated and accumulated and accumulated, and they actually became outward symbols of piety. And rather than protecting people from breaking the word of God, they actually started to make people not be able to get to the word of God. And we see much of Jesus' ministry concerned with this aspect. Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says, They tie heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. He's talking about the extra commandments, the traditions of men, as he calls it. Acts chapter 15, verses 10 to 11, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Now, this is the attitude that had developed by the time of Jesus. But I believe originally, back in the time of Ezra, the intention was very good for this. But obviously, as often things go, things that start good, it's very easy to see how they get corrupted over the years. But it's not really my concern this morning. 
The second element is really the thing that was given the most priority, and that is to raise up many disciples. You see, the understanding was that if you could raise up many disciples who knew the word of God in the Torah, again, this would keep the nation of Israel from apostasy and forsaking the word of God. It's actually said that it was Ezra who was responsible for what we call the synagogue system today. You might notice no, nowhere in the Old Testament are synagogues commanded. And every time when we read through the Old Testament, we don't encounter synagogues. But then all of a sudden, by the time we get to the book of Matthew, synagogues are all over the place. And it's never really explained. This is one of the reasons. It's something that the men of the great assembly instituted. A synagogue was, they call it a bet midrash, that's a house of study. A synagogue was a place that was supposed to be in local communities where the Jewish people could always go and have, hear the word of God being read, modeling what Ezra did with the, the nation of Israel when he did that national Bible study. That was the purpose of synagogues. Now, the belief was that in order to live righteously, people had to know God's law. They would need teachers. But the point was, those teachers would have first had to have been disciples themselves. And thus starts the chain of discipleship. And this is exactly what we find in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and then to practice it, and then to teach it. That's the chain of discipleship that Ezra sets, and sets in motion, which has really been throughout you know, Jewish history up until the time of Jesus at that time. The sages continued this custom. And this is why you see all throughout Jewish history leading up to the time of Jesus and, and closely following it, this concept of a teacher with disciples. There's a famous rabbi called Rabbi Hillel, a very strong school of Jewish thought around the time of Jesus. He had 70 main disciples. One of his disciples was called uh, Ben Zakkai, and he was very, very formative in Jewish understanding. He had five main disciples. Another rabbi called Rabbi Akiva, you may have heard of him. He's very, he's very, very famous rabbi. He was in fact skinned alive by the Romans uh, for refusing to stop teaching Torah publicly. He had five main disciples and he had thousands of disciples that followed him too. It says in his final moments on earth he recited the Shema. As they were skinning him alive he was saying, Hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And one of his students at this time, this was always done publicly, they said to him, Teacher, even this far are you, are you continuing to say the Shema even when you're going through such misery? And he said this, The Shema teaches us to love God with all our souls, which I understand to mean even if they are taking your soul. My entire life I agonized over this verse. Would I really love God even if my soul were being taken? At last I, I have that opportunity to demonstrate this. How could I not do so? So he was a teacher to the very end, is what his point. This is how he's respected in the Jewish tradition. And it's true, there's a lot of records that describe this event in, in quite a lot of detail. Um, even Josephus gives us some of this. Rabbi Gamaliel, you may have heard of him. We actually encounter him in the Bible, don't we? He had a very famous disciple. Does anyone know who his, one of his famous disciples was? The Apostle, yeah. Well, the Apostle Paul, basically. He was a, he was a student of Gamaliel. We meet Rav Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, <laughs> He was called rabbi by his disciples. He had 12 main disciples, and obviously he had thousands of others that followed him around the landscape. You see, this is how it developed into this custom. Yet we obviously, there's some cautions and qualifications we need to make. It wasn't just about subscribing to the same doctrines as your teacher. It was actually about becoming like your teacher in every way. And they did this quite literally. You would drop everything and you would go and live and eat and sleep and follow with your rabbi. 
you would understand his interpretation of the law, what he thought about things, what he liked, what he disliked. You would be involved in disputes about the law with him. It was a very, very, very radical and intimate thing. This was really what they were talking about here. And this is the concept that we find laid out for us in the New Testament. It's easy to look back and sort of, well, maybe look in Israel now and see how sort of weird it is that some people follow rabbis so closely. And obviously today it's far removed from what we're seeing here. But back in the time of Jesus, this was, this was what discipleship was. And even Jesus gives us this. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. He says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is the concept here. And this is what I want you to understand. The essence of discipleship is the art of imitation. Okay? The essence of discipleship is the art of imitation. Now that's very important. This is drawn from the book of Leviticus. Okay, remember, we're probably, it's probably the book we're least familiar with in Western Christendom, the book of Leviticus. We just don't know what to do with it. It's rituals and customs that just we seemingly have no relevance to us today. It's one of the first books that Jewish people were ever taught in, when they're growing up in, the, in their synagogues, the book of Leviticus. Eight times in that book you'll find this phrase, Be ye, ye holy, because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. That's imitation. That's the point. This is the foundation of discipleship. And again, we see this in the New Testament. 1 Peter, 5, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Be like the Holy One who called you. Be yourselves holy in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, this is typical understanding of a Jewish, of a Jewish person at this time. Here, Peter, explaining this concept of discipleship back to this principle of imitating God. This was, you know, the essence of discipleship is imitation. And I, now that I've pointed it out to you, I want you to read your New Testaments and just look at how many times this principle comes up. It's all over the place. I'll read a few to you here. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 to 16. It says, if you, have, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the, through the gospel, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 and 6, our gospel did not come in word only, but in power of the Holy Spirit and full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. And then famously, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. And this is the real honing in. This is slight separation between the, the Jewish concept and the way it's now being refined and focused on Jesus Christ. We imitate these, Paul says, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. Probably the most famous book, or the most read book, even more apparently than The Pilgrim's Progress in Christian history, is a book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Now, it's, it's sort of revered in the Catholic tradition more today than it is in, in, in any parts of the world. But that is said to be the most um, popular and most read Christian book in, in the history of the world, even more than Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress. And it gets its title from this verse, Be Imitators of Me, as I Am of Christ. And this is the point I want us to understand. For Christian discipleship, we're not looking to follow men, a great sage, a great rabbi, like, like people do maybe in Israel today, or guru, a guru or something like this. In fact, in the Bible, you'll see that 
to do that is actually considered a sign of immaturity. You remember in 1 Corinthians, where Paul's kind of rebuking the Corinthian church, he says, there's jealousy and strife among you. You're not, are you not walking as mere men? But when one says, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, are you not mere, you know, and he goes on, you, say, you know, this is carnality, he's saying, when you associate yourselves with a mere man. And the point is, Jesus now is taking this further because obviously we don't look to follow men. We only follow them as much as they follow and lead us into Christ. Do you remember when Jesus said uh, in the book of Matthew, do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher, all are brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders for one is your leader and that is Christ. I think that's the, the qualification he's giving here. That unlike many of these sort of rabbi and student relationships that you had around this time, it's now changed because the great rabbi has come. There will no longer ever be anyone who comes after him in that sense. And everyone who does come under him is supposed to operate underneath him and point everyone towards him. That is now the phase of Christian discipleship. And this is again what we find Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, therefore be imitators, is that word again, of God. As beloved children, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for you. You see, he says, be an imitator of God, and then he immediately gives Christ as the example of how we do that. And every servant, every pastor, every leader of Lord's, his sole duty now is to try and bring people into that conformity to the image of Christ. Yes, by leading by example and imitating, but also understanding that we do not want people to follow us. We want people to follow Jesus Christ. And it's a direction that we push up to that great shepherd. That is now the student-master relationship that we have, according to the New Testament. And then we go back to what Ezra, Ezra established. When a disciple is trained, they become like the teacher. And they would then go on and teach others. Again, we see this in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul writes to his young, his young disciple, Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to go and teach others. Is that not just what Ezra was saying? You study, you practice, and then you teach. It's the very same principle here being played out in real life in the New Testament. And throughout church history, there's been many good examples of this. One of my favorites is the threefold church. They call it a chain of discipleship now that you see. Now, obviously, some people in the chain usually rise to greater prominence, but the point to understand is without the chain, which starts, obviously, with people now pointing to Jesus Christ, you don't get discipleship. You had the Apostle John, one of the last surviving apostles, one of his disciples was the, the, the man called Polycarp. One of his disciples was a man called Irenaeus. Now, these might sound like sort of strange names to us. We don't know much about them. But these were the people that really carried the church into the, into the second century after the death of the apostles. You can actually read, we actually have letters from Polycarp to the church of the Philippians. That very same church that Paul wrote that letter to. Just a, just a few, you know, not long later, a few years later, we see one of John's disciples writing another letter to Philippians. And it's an amazing letter. It's full, full of the Bible. It's great for historical reasons, for you know, helping us know what scripture was accepted at this time. And these two people, Polycarp and Irenaeus, they really led the charge for the early church against all the sort of Gnostic heresies that were arising at this time. And this was a beautiful chain of discipleship. And this is really where we are in the first century. And it's a great model for us to have today. Now, I want to just move on from that and look at some characteristics that will arise if this process is being adhered to. What does it mean to actually imitate Christ? How will that be displayed in our lives? Because this is the very important thing for us. We can look at the process. Again, it's Ezra's process, study, practice, and teach, played out in different ways. 
The first place is John chapter 8. I'm going to give you a couple of these. There are obviously many more that we could go through. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you continue in the word, then you are truly a disciple of mine. And obviously a positive statement like that, unspoken with that, is also the negative. If you do not continue in my word, then you are not a disciple of mine. And how often do we see in the Bible these people described? They're following Jesus at a distance, and then he says something that they don't like, and describes how they turn away and leave him. This is, this is what, basically what he's saying um, at this time. You see, eternal life, yes, is free, but discipleship requires us to continue in his word, to abide in his word, as it says in the book of John. This is the radical pursuit of the knowledge of God's word. This is a first principle in discipleship, and it's often, I believe, forgotten in the Western church. And this is why one of the reasons we have so many converts and so few disciples. Now, let me just be clear. I'm not talking about the acquisition of facts, complex academia. That's not what I mean when I say continuing in his word. In the Hebrew concept, this was an experiential knowledge. It was knowledge learnt and lived out practically. You know, quite often we need to learn, you know, we make mistakes and that's how we learn. It's one of the best ways really to learn. And this was, we see this all the time throughout the Bible. Now, yes, it will obviously incorporate learning certain facts, but the focus of them was application. You see, the, the verse that we find in, in the Old Testament and repeated in the New Testament, the just shall live by faith, Obviously, in the Hebrew, the faith there, the word could just as easily be translated faithfulness. And it's, you know, the just shall live by their faithfulness. And it's referring to this ongoing process of walking and abiding in the word of God. Now, how many of us have known someone, you know, it's not just about knowing lots of the Bible. You know, we've, we've all known people who know a lot of things about the Bible. You see, they've, they've been in good churches, they've listened to the word of God, they've sat under good teaching, and they, they've sort of intellectually assented to the fact that this God thing seems to be true. It's a good explanation of the world. Yet in their lives, they still display a rebellion to God. See, this, this is not what it was talking about, just knowing stuff like this. It was an unwillingness to submit. Now, one of the components of first century discipleship that we see Jesus and the apostles talking about, one of the first things you had to be willing to do was submit to the authority of your rabbi to learn and live as he does, but forsake everything for him. Okay, that was the first thing. Now remember, obviously, our, our rabbi, the great shepherd, is Jesus Christ. We follow his word. We must be willing to follow his word. And obviously, this gets even more deep when we understand that he is actually quite literally the word incarnate, the, the literal living incarnate word of God. Oswald Chambers said, the one sign of discipleship is intimate connection with him, a knowledge of Jesus Christ nothing else can shake. A knowledge of Jesus Christ nothing else can shake. You see, it's about our conduct and the way we follow him. In the Western church, we're very wary of talking about conduct because I think for one reason, we, we have a Protestant history where the whole divide was to do with works and faith. And obviously, we separated from the Catholic Church that were teaching about works for salvation. And then Martin Luther came along and he took that conflict and he overlaid that onto the Bible. So he then replaced the Pharisees in the position of the Catholic Church and him in the position of everyone else. And therefore, because of that, 
every time we hear the word works, we think of this history. It's just bred in us because we, we come from the Protestant uh, Reformation. I'm not denying any of that was, was very useful at the time, but we have to be careful because so many times throughout the Bible, especially talking about discipleship, conduct is at the forefront of what it's talking about. It's not conduct for mere external religious sake. It's conduct born out of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a very different uh, emphasis there. And for many times, it's this that is given as the reason as how the church is going to be so effective in reaching the world. Titus 2, verse 10, another of my favorite verses. It says, you will show all good faith so that, they will, so that you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. He's talking to the church here. And the word adorn is the word cosmetic. It's cosmeo in Greek. It's where we get our term cosmetics. You all know what cosmetics are. You put them on to make yourself beautiful. This is the picture that's being used here. As the church submits, willingly, lives out, learns, and imitates the teachings and the word of God, it is those very things that will make us beautiful to the world. Because we all know there's not really anything in ourselves that is going to do that. It has to be the lived out, practically displayed, understood meaning of the word of God. And that is the call of the church. And that is what we are called to do. If we fail to live these doctrines out, we fail to properly imitate Christ. Imitation is the essence of discipleship. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 to 3. The Apostle Paul takes this principle even further. He says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. It's a very important verse. What's the point of this verse? What he is saying here is that people are supposed to be able to read a disciple and know about his master. And he's saying here that we are living epistles. An epistle is a writing, a teaching. We are living epistles, not with ink, but written with the Spirit of God in our hearts. As the Spirit of God transforms us, conforms us to the image of Christ, people should be able to see us and read us just as if they are reading epistle, and we should testify to the Master, because he is the one who we're imitating. It's a very, very powerful principle here. You remember um, in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John were preaching, and people said, oh, these are uneducated and untrained men, but they recognized them because they had been with Jesus. They recognized these men that they had been with Jesus because they were now imitating him in that, that way that was so obvious to these other people. Something was different now. That should be our desire for all of us as disciples of Christ. Now, how does this manifest itself? What is another key characteristic of a disciple? This is found in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I has loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all men will know if you are my disciples if you have love to one another. You see, we are vessels to display God's love to, of Christ in this world, a denying self-sacrificial love. You remember when Jesus was asked, how do you sum up the Torah? Again, this was a disciple, very common question in first century Jewish people. You saw one rabbi and his disciples, you would send your disciples to go and ask this rabbi, how do you understand the Torah? What's your summarizing principle of the word of God? Very common, and this is how debates started. Jesus is asked this question, and he sums up the entire message of the Bible by quoting two verses from the Old Testament. First of all, you love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and strength, and then you love your neighbor as yourself. This is his entire summation of the Bible. And this talks about loving God with everything you are, your heart, your soul, your mind, 
and also your strength there. And that word actually implied more than just physical strength. It was replied, it kind of they, they understood this to mean everything that you owned, your possessions, your abilities, your natural given talents that are different from spiritual gifts, just your natural talents, all need to be used in conjunction with serving and loving God. Do you remember when the, the rich young ruler, Luke chapter 18, he came to Jesus and he said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you, you know, he listed a few of the commandments, do not do this, do this, and you know, do these things and, you're, and you're, you'll have eternal life. And many people, often in the Western church, we read that and we think, now is that, is Jesus sort of advocating a work salvation there, saying if you do these things, then you'll get into heaven? That's not at all what he's saying there. He's using a very, very subtle method to show, because this was a rich man, to show this man that he hadn't even fulfilled the first commandment to love God with all his heart, soul, and strength. Strength interpreted it as possessions in this sense, because he was not willing to give up his possessions for Jesus Christ. So this man, although he thought he was doing very well, he'd actually failed to enter at the very first step of discipleship. And that's all that Jesus is doing when he makes that comment there. He was exposing that he'd failed to do that. And this is an issue. Financial stewardship in this time was obviously a discipleship issue. Another issue, discipleship is costly. I think about those 300 people now dead in Sri Lanka because they entered a church. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 to 28. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Now this is a very strong verse and it hits us. And a lot of people get bothered by this. Is he saying that we're supposed to hate our parents? We're kind of understanding the use of sort of the idiomatic language that he's doing here in an oral teaching culture. The actual point that he uses, uh, the family, is actually making the point that, of course, they are the people you love most in the world. He's not saying you hate your parents. He's actually making the point, of course, they're the people you love most in the world. However, God is not looking just to be one other member of your family. He is actually above your family and above any, any sort of human relation you can have. God has that pride of place. That's the point he's making with that sort of language. And he goes on to say, if you're not willing to carry me across, you cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, I find that extremely challenging. He says, not that you're not, he says, you cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to carry your cross. Let me read to you again from Bonhoeffer. It's a slightly longer quote, but it's worth, it's worth just listening to. Another few, few minutes and we'll be done. Bonhoeffer says, whoever enters discipleship enters into Jesus' death and puts his or her own life into death. This has been so from the beginning. The cross is not the horrible end of a pious, happy life, but stands rather at the beginning of community with Jesus Christ. Every call of Christ leads to death. And whether the first disciples, whether with the first disciples we leave home and occupation in order to follow him, or whether with Luther, Luther we leave the monastery to enter a secular profession, in either case, the one death awaits us, namely death in Jesus Christ, the dying away of our old form of being human in Jesus' call. He goes on, there are Christians who do indeed kneel before the cross of Christ and yet reject and struggle against every tribulation in their own lives. They believe they love the cross of Christ and yet they hate that cross in their own lives. And so in truth, they hate the cross of Christ as well. 
and in truth despise that cross and try by any means possible to escape it. But those who love the cross of Jesus Christ, those who have genuinely found peace in it, now, being, now begin to love even the tribulations in their own life. And ultimately, they are the ones who are able to say with the Apostle Paul that we also boast in our sufferings. Now, I find that extremely challenging to me, to, you know, to all of us, we should, as disciples of Jesus Christ, to have that sort of intimacy and understanding that we give up everything when we follow Jesus Christ. It's a self-sacrificial love. But this is what they said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a dying to self, a death to all attachments in this world, even to the point of death, if that is what is called for. Now, that's kind of foreign to our context. We've been reminded very graphically this weekend it's not foreign to a lot of people in these contexts, but the principles are still the same. Even if physical death is what it's talking about, that's what it's talking about. Obviously, Bonhoeffer is also talking about a sort of spiritual death in the sense of we die with Christ and then we walk with him and obviously his life now becomes, our life becomes his. We're not our own anymore. We're owned, we're bought with a price, so to speak. We live for him. If I could give you a summation now, as we sort of close, we've looked at a few principles, we've looked at the history of discipleship. When someone says to you, what is discipleship? What does it mean? Let me give you a, a one-sentence answer to this. Discipleship is radical imitation of Christ, informed by his word, empowered by his spirit, manifested in obedience and self-sacrificial love. Radical imitation of Christ, informed by his word, empowered by his spirit, and manifested in obedience and self-sacrificial love. I believe that is really what it truly means to adorn the doctrines of Christ, to wear the word of God as a living sacrifice, to be those living epistles as we are out in this world, and people are reading us. They're reading you in your schools, they're reading you when you're at work, and we have such an opportunity and an avenue into people's lives because they don't often walk into churches anymore, do they? This is the concept. We are the messenger. The messenger should really become the message himself. That's how radical this imitation goes. And this is the very point of Christian discipleship. Radical conformity to the image of Christ, knowing that one day we shall see him like he is. And eventually we shall have those glorified and resurrected bodies. We are to continue in the word, to abide in that word. It is that word that will set us free. And then we are also free to live out that word for other people so that they can be set free too. This is the foundational principle of discipleship. I'm going to leave it there with you now on that principle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And Lord, this is a challenging concept. I understand that. And I pray, Lord, that in our own time and in your own way, you would personally lead us all into a deeper relationship with you. That as a body, Lord, we would encourage one another to these things that it would be the joy of our heart, Lord, to serve you, uh, that we would understand that true joy is found in your presence, Lord God. We pray that you, we just thank you for your grace, Lord, as we know we fail, as we learn from mistakes, Lord, we know that nothing is wasted in our lives. So we just commit ourselves to you afresh this morning, Lord God. Fill us, Lord, and transform us. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.